Welcome back to Coming Up for Air with hosts Dominique Simone Levine, Laurie McDougall, and Kayla Solomon. This podcast is produced with love by the Allies and Recovery team in solidarity with our listeners. Come in and sit with us for conversations on the most pertinent topics for families navigating a loved one's addiction. We created this podcast along with the learning modules and discussion blog in support of you. We salute the work you are doing and your dedication to helping your loved one find a way through. And now, coming up for air. Hi, everyone. This is Laurie McDougall back on Coming Up for Air with my co-hosts, Kayla Solomon. How are you this morning, Kayla? I'm good. Good morning. And Dominique Simone Levine. How are you, Dominique? I'm well. Hello, everyone. This morning's topic is a tough one, but we decided that we would talk about not taking things personally and how to go ahead and get distance or take a break from that. I don't know. You want to get us started, Kayla? You have any thoughts? Sure. On that? I mean, just the one thought is how enmeshed and immersed, immersed with the other person that um, we get when there's a crisis or when somebody's having a difficult time. And the space between two people gets pretty much shrunken into nothing. And it feels like your identity kind of gets consumed by this other person. So if they're in crisis, if they're not having the life that you think is valuable, if they're harming themselves either passively or actively, if they're doing things in your home or even in their own home that feels very negative to you, there's this way that we kind of ingest it and get consumed by it that really kind of hijacks our lives. So what we've been thinking about a lot in, in the group is how do you have this going on? It's not that we could change the situation, but how do we change our reactions to it so that we're not, it basically feels to me like you get caught up in the undertow and then the, you look up and the next thing you know, you're out to sea and you're drowning. So that's that's what I think we should be talking about today, that how do we get space so that we're not drowning because of the other person's behavior. I think it's also really important to understand where it's coming from. All of society, when we have kids and when we talk about taking things personally, it doesn't have to be a mom and a dad or a grandmother and a grandfather. It can be a spouse, a partner, a brother, a sister, but just looking at the parenting role and the way society sends messages to parents is that you are responsible for your loved one's behavior from a very early age. And if they are going off the rails or engaging in any kind of difficult behavior, then it is your fault, right? So it can kind of evolve and become really a part of who we are as parents so that when something really difficult comes along, like substance use disorder, their behavior is still our fault. And it's that way until they're 18. And then once they're 18, parents are then expected to totally release from that. So before 
before 18, it was our fault. We didn't do something. We didn't do something correctly or right. And otherwise, this child or youth wouldn't be behaving in this particular way. And then it's the day they turn 18. Oh, it's not your fault. Right. And now we want you to just break away from that and not feel like it's your fault. Really, to be honest with you, I think it's a almost impossible task that the moment someone turns 18, that you just drastically change your relationship and who you are and how you're going to approach things. It doesn't, it doesn't happen that way. And it becomes so ingrained in you. Like you hear messages like this all the time. I don't care if you're 18, 25, 30, or 60. I'm your mother and I'll always be your mother. And I will always tell you da 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 da, da right? Or I will always correct you. Or so in the parent's mind, the relationship really doesn't change. And it's not supposed to. But then a person turns 18 and then all of a sudden the world is like, well, not only should you release from that, but it's your fault that they're engaging in that behavior because now you're enabling. So really, we can't win. We can't win. And so it's really difficult to then, one, to even identify what's going on here, to even identify that I'm taking this personally or that that's the effect that all of these messages have had on me. And that's the belief of who I am. I am the parent. I'm the mom. I'm the dad. And this is my job. And now I'm being made to feel guilty because I'm doing, I'm still doing that, still following through on what society said I should be doing. And now that's wrong. So it's, it's a really conflicting thing. And it's so embedded that it's, it's also incredibly difficult to identify why you feel that way, why you feel like this person is doing this to me and I'm taking it personally. So I, I, can I step in here? Because as it relates to craft, I think what happens with that parental role, however society is defining it, Lori, negatively over 18, under 18, with craft, the parental role is designed to address the addiction. And that asks of the parent to put some things aside. What you're looking for under 18 or over 18 is exactly the same thing with craft. They did studies of craft with parents of under, under 18 year olds, and it worked beautifully. They got the same results as they were doing, were getting with adults, loved ones, right? Family members of adult loved ones. And so you kind of have to cut through all the parental societal things and go for what is effective and what we say is effective is craft. And the other thing, I keep wanting to throw out the word codependent because this is what is usually usually called codependency in the popular literature. I don't like that word. I think it, it reduces a whole lot of complex issues into one, you're the problem and you're codependent and you just need to, to walk away some, or something like that. And that's, that's not what we're saying here at all. We're saying that the interactions and the relationships are very complicated and you as the, as the person in better health need to accept that you may have to alter how you're parenting 
how you're relating to your loved one with addiction in order to be in order to be successful. The other thing that I don't like about codependency is that it pathologizes what somebody who loves someone does when they're in trouble. You step in, you have compassion, you have empathy, you want to help. That is a human universal. I remember looking at studies of altruism a long time ago, and this idea of humans merging, the way you were describing, Kayla, stepping in, all of a sudden two become one, that's compassion. We're designed to do that. I think that's why we are alive as humans today, in part, is because we can merge. The problem is it's supposed to be temporary. You're supposed to back out of the situation when the event has passed or the crisis has passed and return to your own embodied individual self. But the situation is chronic and it's, it's sort of snowballing and you can't get hold of yourself and things are getting worse and nothing seems to be working. And so you're caught in this stuck place almost glued to the person who's in trouble, who's the squeaky wheel, who's, who's in, in need, and you're feeling horribly responsible for it, and you're not able to take that step back, as, as you were both saying early on. You use the word codependence, and when I think about codependence, I think of it as that you become merged. I think that's a really good way of putting it, and that it's really hard to differentiate what's happening to you and what's happening to the other person. And that's not healthy. So what Lori's talking about is how being a parent, how society defines it, how you define it, what responsibilities you have, which I think is a really, really essential starting point. And as a parent of somebody who's under 18, it's fascinating because I have really been working hard on allowing my daughter to have a separate identity from myself. It is essential. I see every time I step back and give her space to make mistakes and do what she needs to do and figure things out herself, that she gets stronger. And the more I try to influence her, which by the way, is really hard for me not to do, because I love doing that stuff. I love giving her advice and guiding her and all these things that parents are supposed to do. But I have to realize that there comes a point when I'm trying to get her to be more like me than herself. And she is completely different. And I feel like that's the message here is our loved ones have their own identities. We might not like all of their part of those identities. We might not like their behavior. We, We might not like their choices. We might think that they could do a lot better or that they have this ability to be much more productive and out there, but we don't have control over that. And when I'm saying this getting space, it's not about stepping away and not being part of somebody's life. It's about giving them a healthy distance between the two of you so you can differentiate yourself from the other person. And if you differentiate yourself from the other person, then you, when they do things, it's not about you, it's about them. And when you give them their choices, it's their choices, not, it's not about you. I mean, I totally agree with you. I, but it took me a while to get there, Kayla. And it's because I was fighting these already ingrained you know, those neurons had been laid down and established and strengthened and strengthened and strengthened. And then when it when it came time for this, I almost couldn't at first I couldn't move away from that. And I needed to have some kind of slow process to help move me in that direction. 
And that's what I'm going to say craft really did for me. Learning the skills that I learned on the Allies and Recovery website helped me to do a few things like slowly turn to the positive things that my loved one was doing and not focus on the negative things and start to really kind of take in that when my loved one and not just my loved one with SUD, but my other children at the same time. I started taking a look at that and saying, you know, I can't take credit for their successes in life, which means I also can't take credit for their difficulties in life. It's their struggle, but it's also still really hard, even though I'm not taking it as personally, like I have that flood of, oh, this is a reflection on me and I'm embarrassed in front of other people when my loved one does something I don't approve of, or I immediately get flooded with that, or, you know, it takes me over and I have to stop and I have to talk to myself. They're not doing this to you. This is their choice. And it really isn't a reflection on you and just really, really kind of pull myself away from that. And I'll tell you that just a really good example of how difficult it is. And maybe some of the listeners out there, maybe they can write in and kind of verify that they've experienced this type of thing. But if you go out and you help your loved one get a job, even when they were young, they get this job working for a friend. And then the friend comes to you and says they've been late every morning The first automatic response from me originally, I've kind of changed my view of it, but my original response would be like, oh, oh, you know what? They've been sick all morning, you know, each morning. I wonder if that's what's the and I'm making up all of these excuses for my loved one for being late. And I have no idea why they're late. And then also realizing that, oh, this is me wanting to maintain my relationship with my friend, not let bridges being burnt between my friend and my my loved one. And this is me taking on my loved one's behavior and kind of taking it personally. I did this for him or her. And and this is what you do to me. You go to work late. You're going to ruin my relationship. So learning to step away and just kind of say, you know what? I don't know what happened. I don't know what's going on. You'll have to talk to them. Yeah. Get out of the middle. Get out of the middle of it. And it helped me learn, oh, I'm not going to get my loved one a job through a friend or something like that because, because I don't like being put in that situation. But in some ways, that's really good because now it puts it on my loved one to go and find their own job. And it isn't about they're doing something to me because they're not. Let's do some conceptualization here. Okay. So we're talking about how to not take it personally, how to allow the person the dignity of their own process, how not to be enmeshed with somebody. So there's a couple of tools that I use for this. Number one is that I believe in natural consequences, which is definitely a part of the craft model, which is People, based on their choices, things will happen naturally. And I also believe that the first step to change for ourselves is to have the concept of what we want. 
And a lot of times we don't know what we want, but we need to identify what we want to stop doing and what we don't want. So in this case, it's like every time you do something, it feels like you're doing it to me or it feels like I'm at fault or I'm to blame or somehow your behavior is a reflection of me. And I think the word reflection is a very important word in this conversation, that your life is a reflection of me. So it is personal. And so the first step is to start to really have a good boundary of this is me and this is the other person. And literally, I have to see this as there's like this outline of myself and this outline of my loved one. And there's a difference between the two. It is not this blurry, amorphous, where one amoeba that hasn't split yet. So that's huge. And then it's about being able to witness as opposed to have to participate in everything. You get to witness that person's choices. You get to watch what they do. You get to encourage when they're doing well and step away and not necessarily say a word when they're not. If they ask for advice, you get to give it. But by the way, we need to keep whatever advice we're giving very brief and very limited because we go, Baba, oh, the door's open. Blah, 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 blah. And I like to think of it as I have two sentences that I have time for. And after that, I'm the Charlie Brown teacher. So I have to think before I speak, which is really hard for me, and come up with the two most important pieces of advice that I have. And I have to get it out quickly and briefly and then shut up because after that, I'm talking to myself. So there's all these tools that we have. But really, a lot of what drives me is this respect for the other person, because I believe in people. I believe that no matter how screwy they act or how much of a mess they make or how much they're caught up in their negative behavior, there is possibility for change and they have their own strengths and they have their own desire to heal. And my, my work is to reflect that and see that and model that as opposed to see them as screwed up in a mess. But I also can't impose that view on their behavior. I cannot make them change. So Dominique, you were going to say something? I just know that the tip of the tongues of a lot of people that are listening to this, it's like, but they're in danger. How do I do what you're all saying when it could be lethal? They could go out and overdose. I hear you, Dominique, and I hear everybody, and I totally understand. And I know you don't like that saying I understand, but I do understand because that is exactly how I felt when I first found craft. I was petrified every moment, every day, to the point where I almost needed to be attached at the hip following around and making sure that he wasn't going to die. And in fact, to be honest with you, in the beginning of my journey, when, you know, when I was traumatized by finding him the way I found him, I remember starting off in meetings and saying right in those meetings, if I could attach a ball and a chain to him and me, I would do it to save his life. So this is what I really like about craft and what I learned on Allies and Recovery is that I can take tiny, small baby steps through my trauma, tiny little movements towards seeing my loved one as being separate from me. It literally was taking the time to start to focus, even if it was just one positive thing, 
And also recognizing that even when my loved one is making choices that I didn't want him to make, that I could still be respectful of that as kind of like what Kayla was saying, you know, being respectful of that and just kind of still being there. How do I describe this? This isn't coming out right. It's those tiny, tiny little baby steps that moved me over a little bit at a time. It was a journey. It wasn't a moment of time when I just decided I was going to change or I just woke up one day and just said, oh, I'm going to just let go today. And I'm not attached to him at the hip anymore. It wasn't like that. It was a process. It was, I'm going to try out this one communication skill and see how it goes. I'm going to try no negative talk today. And that's it. That's all I'm going to do. And it was little bits that helped move me to a space and time where I'm better. And I'm going to, and I'm going to say this, I'm better, but I am certainly not an expert at it. And I still slip back into old patterns and do uh, get frustrated and, and all of that, but I'm better. I'm better than I was. So maybe the way to conceptualize this is you do it as an experiment. And I feel like if you look at the way that you've been doing it, which is I am going to be in this person's life and watch every move and respond to everything in a particular way. How's that going? Okay, is it working? And and you cannot use the person is still alive as your, you know, that you're doing a great job on this because that could happen even without your intervention. So that's not a good subject is whether the person's alive or not. And you've done such a good job keeping them alive. I actually always start people with and I do this with people who are using substances as well with experiments because people will come in and say to me, you know, I could stop anytime. So I'm like, all right, I'll bet you 10 bucks that if you could stay clean for the next two weeks, we're going to have a different discussion. Okay. So give it a shot. And I feel like that's what we all should be doing is trying experiments. So you try an experiment, but, but you try to do it as well. Like you focus on one tiny little thing and that's what you're paying attention to for a period of time. And then noticing the outcome So I completely agree, Lori, that it is this is not, you know, oh, you're learning all this thing, all these things in in the podcast or in the meetings or on the website. And then your life is going to change and you're going to be an expert or, you know, you're perfect at this. Perfect is not the goal. The goal is tiny, minute changes and watching the effect. So if you watch the effect and you notice even that you're noticing that you're calmer or that you have a reaction and you can calm yourself down and back yourself down or you had a really bad day and then you're able to replenish yourself. That's what I'm talking about with this. It's not, oh, you know, I did all of this and now my loved one's doing so great. And because my loved one doing is doing so great, I am. Because truthfully, what we all know is your loved one starts doing better and you don't feel better because then you're just waiting for the other shoe to drop. The work really has to start with yourself to comfort yourself and calm yourself and find self-soothing techniques so that you could actually make it through with somebody who has been traumatizing you, you know, you have that trauma and they're also traumatized. I think it's really, really important for family members to understand too, that you're going to implement 
a strategy or a new skill like Kayla's talking about, right? You're going to implement it as kind of like this experiment. But a lot of the time I find family members think that they're going to implement it. It's going to go well and everything is going to get better. I get it. But actually, you're going to implement a skill. It might work in the moment. And then 10 minutes later, you try and implement the same skill and it's going to go off the rails. For me, it was always, well, the skill did work one time. It did. And if it worked one time, it can work again and again and again. It might not work the next time, but it could work the third time or it could work the ninth time. So I'm not going to give up on the skill. If it worked once, it can work again. And it's also important to remember what it's working for. That's the other thing is that people think of like take the communication skills. They think they're going to implement the communication skills. And now you're going to have these wonderful conversations with your loved one all the time. It's going to be great. And that's not it because your loved one isn't changing their communication strategies and skills, you are. So it's gonna be difficult and they are not going to respond the way you want them to, not for a long time, not for a while. But if you stick to it, you will see that there's change in the, within the relationship. That is the beauty of craft, right? So. Bob Myers and his colleagues designed sort of the best stance that a family member can take in response to an addiction in a loved one. And so we're talking about skills, techniques, tips, strategies. All of that is encompassed in the craft approach. Together with communications, stepping in, stepping away, the behavior of you, the family member, in relation to your loved one, your own work in de-meshing yourself from your loved one, and learning some skills to engage into recovery and treatment. By that, you have created the best stance. It's been studied. You don't have to guess. You don't have to go read popular culture books. This is it. And, and something like uh, No Negative Talk tough man try that for one day we on average have four negative comments for every positive one and that's got to be completely reversed we need four positives for every negative that's what Gautam from the university of washington sort of the real social scientist to look at relationships has found and it's so difficult to do so there's lots of those things and even if you try a few of them a little bit and make sure that observant eye is on so you can see the reaction. You want to look for even a little tiny bit of shift. Like all of a sudden, he stopped arguing. He, he was kind of flummoxed. He, he didn't know where to go because I didn't point back at him. I went the other way. I, I, I turned around and said, no, well, if that's what you think, you know, or whatever it is. But it's very important to realize that the work has been done of putting together the tips, the strategies, the overall look and feel of, of how you should be relating. Should is the wrong word, but what has been studied and shown to be the most effective. So I'd like to throw out two questions to ask yourself every time you start practicing a new skill. And then hopefully after I'm done with that, Kayla, if you wouldn't mind giving us a quick summary of what we talked about today. But here's two questions. So is if you try out a new skill. Every time you try it out, ask yourself these two questions when you're done. What went well? 
and then jot them down. What are the things that went well when you tried out this skill and what needs improvement? What can you improve on? And just jot them down. And then the next time you try and implement that skill, try and think back to what went well and what needs improvement. Goal for life. Kayla, could you wrap it up? Today we talk about how to not take things personally, which basically involves unmeshing yourself from the other person, seeing yourself as a separate human being from the other person, allowing them the dignity and the respect of their own process, you really focusing on small incremental changes to your own self-care and also how you engage with the other person and also really going deep with yourself. Not that we talk that much about it, but looking at how you feel responsible or any kind of issues that you have with shame or the way you feel connected to them. And so it's like, how do you stay connected and compassionate without getting consumed by another person and their behavior? And that's the work. It's not, none of this is easy, but it's about setting that out as a way to, to view it so that you could start to do the work on it and take it apart slowly and progressively. Thank you, ladies, and we will be back next week. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode of Coming Up for Air spoke to you. If you're listening in today on a podcast platform that isn't the Allies member site, please take a moment to give us a five-star rating. This helps others find the show more easily. If you have a suggestion for a new topic or a guest for the show, please reach out through the Contact Us form on alliesinrecovery.net. Special thanks to our hosts, our guests, and our production team.